At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Welcome to a breath of fresh earth, taking the commitment to a clean environment to the next level. Your host, Rick Friedman, will crown the climate hero and villain of the week, along with discussing worldwide environmental issues, showcasing new products designed with the longevity of our planet in mind, and putting the spotlight on the individuals making a big impact in helping the climate and pollution crisis through social media. Now, your host, Rick Friedman. I'm thrilled to be presenting this segment to you. It's one I've been trying to fit into the schedule for quite some time, and today is the day. Life hangs by a thread. We rely on the right mix of water, oxygen, leaders who don't press nuclear launch codes. We've avoided planet-killing asteroids and comets and a host of ugly deadly forces. And we're still experiencing the effects of a microscopic-sized virus that's brought life to a halt with deadly consequences. And only through the amazing work of scientists are we beginning to see the end of this scourge we call COVID-19. With that in mind, let us proceed. To answer a few questions about the total destruction of all the seeds in the world, I've brought in Professor Ciccolini, who joins us from Fredonia University, and Ambassador Trentino, who studied botany at Sylvania University. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us today. We've got real problems in the world today. Fixing this isn't duck soup. So let's get started. What would happen if, in a worst-case scenario, all the plant life on Earth was destroyed? We'd need a really good plan. Like, what if everyone who grew a garden or ran a nursery put a dozen seeds in their basement for safekeeping? What do you think of that idea, Professor? Well, I'm not sure the plan will work. Yeah, you're probably right. We'd need more of a secure place to store them. I had another plan. Maybe we could put them in a bank. Bank vaults seem safe. Your government is a big proponent of that kind of idea. Ambassador, do you agree with their assertion? It seems to me we've got to change our plan completely. I think you're correct. If we don't prepare for the ultimate disaster... Oh, boy, we could be really screwed. It'll cause a serious problem. Do you think we should be better prepared to save the seeds than we are right now? We can save ourselves a lot of headaches, to say nothing of money. I mean, what kind of money are you talking about? Wouldn't it just a few million dollars do the trick? All right, well, maybe that's, that's not realistic. How about like 10 or 20 or 30 million dollars? It wouldn't be a drop in the bucket. Do you think we're doing enough to save mankind? Or are you worried about our future? You know, I'm worried. I mean, listen to me, I'm, I'm doing this show. I'm worried about mankind all the time. Maybe we should just give up and hope everything gets better. You know, like a miracle. That doesn't always work. Say what you want about miracles, but I'll remind you that Joe Biden won by 7 million votes. And I prayed every night for four years that a Democrat would win. Did you know I used to wake up every morning and check the news to see if the former president died of natural causes in his sleep? Trust me, that is not a healthy way to live. Professor, it got so bad that at the end of the night, when I was done watching CNN and hating on the former president, I'd have to drink a big glass of vodka and tonic to calm down and go to sleep. The daily drink may not be the best thing in the world, 
I know that now, of course. But wow, there were some rough patches along the way. I'm all better, thank you. So, Professor, who do we look to to solve this problem? Science must have some answer to a problem as important as this. We're trying, but the world keeps getting warmer. We've got to protect these seeds. What if I told you there was a place near the Arctic Circle, north of Norway, that holds over one million seeds, and the place is safe from radiation, nuclear war, and global warming? Well, that's good news. You know, I knew you'd say that. Well, gentlemen, I'd like to put your fears to rest, at least for a bit. Before you leave, take a listen to what's happening in the real world. People thought of this possibility many years ago and built a Noah's Ark for seeds. It's called the Global Seed Vault, and it's located in Norway. The seed bank is 390 feet inside a sandstone mountain in the Norwegian island of Spitsbergen in the remote Arctic Svalbard Archipelago. It's the most northern inhabited place in the world, just 600 miles from the North Pole. The bank holds the emergency backup seeds that are saved in other gene banks around the world. It doesn't cost anything for countries to place seeds inside the vault. Most of the money to operate the vault comes from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and various governments. Surprisingly, the vault doesn't come with windows. Ah. While we might think of the vault as the last stand for seeds, it would be more accurate to think of it as the backup for the 1,750 seed banks located around the world. And don't think of we need them because aliens are going to come and kill all plant life on Earth. The seed banks around the world could be damaged or destroyed from various reasons that have nothing to do with aliens. They could be damaged from war, neglect, equipment failure, lack of funds, natural disasters. Each seed sample consists of approximately 500 seeds sealed in an airtight aluminum bag. The facility in Norway has a storage capacity of 4.5 million seed samples. The vault opened in 2008 with 320,000 seeds. The amount of seeds stored in the vault grew quickly, and currently there are over a million different types of seeds safely tucked away. Each country or institution owns and controls access to the seeds that they've deposited. The depositor is the only one that can withdraw the seeds and open the boxes. Sounds like a plot to a future disaster movie where the bad guy steals the vault and destroys mankind and uses the seeds to rebuild with him or her as the one leader of the world. Wow. Where did that evil plan come from? Rick, listeners want a positive spin on the show, not negativity. That's our Norwegian contributor, Liv. Okay, thanks. I, I get the message. But just how safe is the vault from climate change? Within 10 years of its opening, global warming forced the vault to waterproof an area that was never supposed to flood. In 2016, the vault was breached due to excessive high temperatures in the area. Due to global warming, sent meltwater rushing into the entrance of the tunnel. The vault was built to be impenetrable and a fail-safe. That year, instead of snow raining down in the area, heavy rain melted the permafrost. The water rushed in but did not reach the vault itself. The seeds are stored at a crisp 18 below centigrade. The vault is supposed to last for eternity, and it sounds like a great place to visit. See the northern lights, the seed bank, and all the other wonderful places in Norway. But not so fast. The seed bank is off limits. But don't despair. A global architecture and design firm is building the Ark, a visitor center that's planned to open next year. The Ark will provide basic amenities like food and bathrooms for travelers on the frozen tundra and provide a simulation of what it's like to be inside the vault itself. I can just imagine standing there with my wife and she'd say, Look, Rick, pumpkin seeds. We came all this way to see something we could buy at the dollar store for $2. By the way, is there a Starbucks in Spitsbergen? Sorry, honey. I'm willing to bet it would be interesting to see that in person. And then there's something cool about being in the northernmost place in the world compared to anywhere my friends or family have ever been. 
The design of the Ark is split into two buildings. The main visitor area will be a timber frame building carefully suspended above the ground to ensure that it won't heat the permafrost or allow the accumulation of ice melt and snow. Once you're inside, visitors can buy tickets or grab a bite to eat at the cafe. And please, God, don't put a McDonald's there. Although it would be easy to get a really fresh filet of fish sandwich, right? And for dessert, I'd order a Klondike bar. What would you do for a Klondike bar? I tell you what I'd do. I'd travel for 20 hours from Ohio to the frozen tundra of Spitsbergen. This building also houses some production facilities for the Arctic World Archive, a sister project to the vault that opened in 2017, where digital copies of famous artworks and other important documents are stored in a nuclear-safe abandoned coal mine beneath the surface of Svalbard. I'm all up for a trip to the North Pole when the buildings are ready, hopefully in 2022. The Global Seed Vault will secure for centuries millions of seeds representing every important crop variety available in the world today. It's the final backup. Here's your social media minute. Check them out after the show. Today I have three outstanding contributors. First is Alice Bell. You can find her at Alice Bell. She's the author of Can We Save the Planet? Join her and her 28,000 followers. She's writing a book on the history of the climate crisis called Our Biggest Experiment. The book will be available in the fall. During the day, Alice runs the climate charity Possible. They build projects which bring people and technologies together to tackle the climate crisis, from tree planting days to connecting railways to community-owned solar farms. Next is Dr. Kate Marvel. She's a climate scientist. You should definitely read her tweets about climate change and join her 50,000 followers at Dr. Kate Marvel. Here's the description she puts on her Twitter account. Sometime writer, whiskey fan, this is the only good planet. And she was a contributor to the climate book, All We Can Save, written by two women mentioned on a previous episode of this podcast, Dr. Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson and editor-in-chief of Project Drawdown, Dr. Katherine Wilkerson. You can learn more about Dr. Marvel at marvelclimate.com. And last and certainly not least is Patricia Espinoza. You can follow her at P. Espinoza C. She's the Executive Secretary of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. That is a really super big, important title. And she's amazing. 108,000 people follow her. A recent tweet laid out the goals for the 2021 United Nations Climate Change Conference that will be held later this year. She said things, four things we must do. Honor pre-2020 pledges. Wrap up outstanding negotiation items. Lower emissions and raise ambition and leave no voice behind. like that. Congratulations, ladies. It's time for the Climate Hero of the Week. Our hero is Galileo Galilei, famed Italian astronomer, born in 1642, and my personal favorite historical figure. We share the same birthday. In 2015, I was fortunate enough to travel to Florence, Italy, and stand in the middle of the town square, where statues of famous citizens line the central plaza. Chief among them, Galileo stands tall, overlooking the city. Galileo made great improvements in the telescope and is most known for his discovery of the four largest moons of Jupiter, now known as the Galilean moons, Io, Ganymede, Europa, and Callisto. When NASA sent a mission to Jupiter in the late 1990s, it was called Galileo in honor of the famed astronomer. Galileo supported the Copernican system, which said that the Earth and other planets circle the sun. In Galileo's lifetime, the Catholic Church taught that planets orbit the Earth, Galileo's views were declared heresy in 1615. Oh boy, this isn't going to end well for my pal Galileo, is it? In 1633, the church tried Galileo for heresy. His accusers feared the truthful science behind his discovery. 
the church handed down the following order. We pronounce, judge, and declare that you, the said Galileo, have rendered yourself vehemently suspected by this holy office of heresy, that is, of having believed and held the doctrine, which is false and contrary to the holy and divine scriptures, that the sun is the center of the world, and that it does not move from east to west, and that the earth does move, and it is not the center of the world. As the guards led him from the courtroom, he uttered those immortal words, and yet it moves. Galileo spent the last years of his life on house arrest, which is pretty funny to me when you think about my day job and I keep track of people on house arrest. And no, I'm not kidding. And no, we do not have anybody named Galileo currently on house arrest. 359 years later, the church officially declared that Galileo was right all along. The formal rehabilitation was based on the findings of a committee of the Academy of the Pope set up in 1979, right after he took office. The committee decided that the Inquisition had acted in good faith, but was wrong. Just like the Catholic Church told Galileo, Silencio! The former resident in the White House denied science facts in our lifetime, not because he didn't believe the science, but because to do so would go against his and his fellow Republican members of Congress' support for the powerful oil and gas industry and their lobbyists. History repeated itself. From 1633 to 2020, did we learn nothing? So I say to those who deny mankind is responsible for warming the planet, I say, and yet we warm. A breath of fresh earth proudly presents you are there. Thanks, Aditi. Hey, Mike, what year is it? 1977. What were the biggest environmental events in 1977? In a minute, but first, the biggest song of the year was Rod Stewart's Tonight the Night, and Rocky won the Oscar for Best Picture. Peter Finch won Male Actor of the Year for his performance in Network. Frequent listeners may recall episode 10 when I did my version of his Mad as Hell message from the movie Network. Okay, what about the environment? In 1977, Congress passed the Surface Mining Control and Reclamation Act. The act was the primary federal law that regulates the environmental effects of coal mining in the United States. The law created one law for regulating active coal mines and a second for reclaiming abandoned mine lands. If you ever get down to Steubenville, Ohio, on the West Virginia border, you'll see a terrible example of what happens when strip mining just wipes away the beauty of a city. The law grew out of a concern about the environmental effects of strip mining. During World War II, everyone needed coal, and companies scooped it out of the ground without any regard for environment or consequences. In 1974 and 1975, Congress sent mining regulation bills to President Ford, but he vetoed them. He was worried that the law would harm the coal industry. Sound familiar? and that it would increase inflation and restrict the energy supply. Jimmy Carter won the election in 1976, and he signed that act into law in August of 77. The law requires inspection and enforcement capabilities and restricted mining on certain lands, like national parks and wilderness areas. It also makes mining companies get bonds to cover the cost of a site cleanup in case they go out of business, make sure they had proper permits, meet established standards of performance. The Abalone Alliance was a nonviolent civil disobedience group formed to shut down the Pacific Gas and Electric Company's Diablo Canyon Power Plant near San Luis Obispo on the central California coast of the United States. The group of activists took the name Abalone Alliance, referring to the tens of thousands of wild California red abalone that were killed in 1974 in Diablo Cove when the unit's plumbing had its first hot flush. I'll have to check on that, but... A hot flush from a power plant doesn't sound good. The Abalone Alliance staged blockades and occupations at the Diablo Canyon power plant site between 77 and 84. 
Dozens of the top musical, television, and movie stars of the time showed their support by having a series of concerts at Madison Square Garden in New York City through Musicians United for Safe Energy, as well as Peace Sunday at the Rose Bowl. More than 100,000 people showed up. The group held multiple Survival Sundays at the Hollywood Bowl through the Alliance for Survival, a Los Angeles-based Abalone Alliance affiliate. Diablo Canyon is the only operational nuclear power plant left in the state. And in 1977, the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society was founded. This is from their website. Sea Shepherd Conservation Society is an international nonprofit marine wildlife conservation organization. Our mission is to end the destruction of habitat and slaughter of wildlife in the world's oceans in order to conserve and protect ecosystems and species. So even back in 1977, there were people concerned about what was going on. And if you're old enough, you might remember the New York City blackout. It happened on July 13th and lasted until late in the day on the 14th. It was not caused by a freak winter storm, but Mother Nature was involved. Lightning was the main culprit. The biggest loss was the power outage was New Yorkers' self-control. In the Crown Heights neighborhood, 75 stores were looted and fires burned overnight. When the crisis ended, 35 blocks of Broadway were destroyed from looting and fire. 50 Pontiacs were stolen from one car dealership. If those thieves had kept those cars in perfect condition, they could be worth a lot of money. Last year, a 1977 Pontiac Firebird Trans Am hardtop coupe eight-cylinder in mint condition sold for $37,000. If the thieves had stole a Pontiac Phoenix, they probably would have got cut quickly when the car broke down, which it did frequently. Pontiac stopped making that lemon two years later. And finally, the Ecofisk oil field spill. Yes, another oil spill. Ecofisk is an oil field in the North Sea, and in April of 77, a oil well blowout occurred, and an estimated 80,000 to 126,000 barrels of oil spilled into the sea. What happened after the oil spill? Well, nothing. Status quo quickly returned. Oil production is scheduled to continue in that same area until 2050. Now it's time for the Climate Villain of the Week. Sally Balaunas is a retired astrophysicist. She formerly worked at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, and was the deputy director of the Mount Wilson Observatory from 1991 to 2003. She has a Ph.D. in astrophysics from Harvard. These are lofty positions and not given to people without a tremendous amount of skill and expertise in their fields. So how does such an esteemed scientist end up as villain of the week? In 1995, writing for the Marshall Institute think tank, she argued, predictions of an anthropogenic global warming have been greatly exaggerated and that human contribution to global warming over the course of the 21st century will be less than one degree Celsius and probably only a few tenths of a degree. She concluded with the view that even if fears of global warming were realized, a concern which finds no support in the scientific data, there is no significant penalty for waiting at least two decades before taking corrective action to reduce global CO2 emissions. In regard to there being a connection between carbon dioxide rise and climate change, this is what she said in 2001. But it is possible that the particular temperature increase observed in the last hundred years is the result of carbon dioxide produced by human activities? The scientific evidence clearly indicates this is not the case. Measurements of atmospheric temperatures made by instruments lofted in satellites and balloons show that no warming has occurred in the atmosphere in the last 50 years. Her claim that atmospheric data showed no warming trend was proved incorrect. Baliunas contends that findings of human influence on climate change are motivated by financial considerations, 
She said if scientists and researchers were coming out releasing reports that global warming had little to do with man, and mostly to do with just how the planet works, there wouldn't be as much money to study it. What's funny isn't, yet we know that conservative think tanks, like the Heartland Institute, pump millions of dollars into candidates running for office who support fossil fuel companies. And lastly, keep in mind, recent documents written decades ago from oil and gas companies, talked about on this podcast several times, acknowledge greenhouse gases would increase global temperatures. They knew it. Why didn't she? And if she did know it, why did she lie? Bella Yunus said in 1996, the science does not suggest dangerous global warming there is any trace of all of greenhouse warming, it is too small to be seen in the climate record. That means that future warming due to human activities will be quite small, well under one degree centigrade. What does the team have to say to Miss Bellyunis? We are celebrating a special day for a very special man. Today we're combining two of my favorite segments of the show into one. This is due to the person we're talking about that's quite an accomplished scientist. Roger Ravel was born on March 7th, 1909, and died in 1991. And he also won the Tyler Prize in 1984. If you're not familiar with the Tyler Prize, the award was established by the late John and Alice Tyler and considered the highest environmental prize. It's like winning the Nobel Prize for the environment. That's pretty cool to me. Ravel was the founding chairman of the first Committee on Climate Change in the Ocean under the Scientific Committee on Ocean Research in the International Oceanic Commission. Wow, that's a mouthful. In July of 1956, Charles Keeling, featured in Episode 5, joined the staff to head the program and began measurements in atmospheric carbon dioxide at the Mauna Loa Observatory in Hawaii. We've talked about Keeling and the observatory, and of course, our reporter Wheezy McWeeklung travels the world reporting on CO2 levels. Ravel testified to Congress that Earth is like a spaceship, endangered by rising seas. In November 1957, he described his research as suggesting that a large-scale global warming with radical climate changes may result. Ravel was one of the first scientists to recognize the effects of rising levels of atmospheric carbon dioxide on the Earth's surface temperature. Since 1992, the Atmospheric Geophysical Union has annually awarded a prize in his honor, the Roger Ravel Medal, for Outstanding Contributions in Atmospheric Sciences. Well, that's the end of the episode. You may now return to the rest of your day. I hope it's a good one. If you like the show, tell your friends. And remember, I'm still trying to find one listener tuning in from Antarctica. That will mark a listener from every continent. That would be really neat. The number of countries where people have listened to the show has now reached 62. And a special big shout-out to the large number of listeners in India. You know, I still feel bad about the flood two weeks ago in the northern part of your beautiful country. I hope to visit someday. Thanks again, lastly, to the staff for helping out on the show. Steffi, Liv, Aditi, Mike, Professor Ciccolini, Ambassador Trenton, and Anne. The podcast wouldn't be the same without you guys. I'll be back on March 15th to assassinate Julius Caesar. Until then, good night, Galileo. Thanks for listening to A Breath of Fresh Earth with your host, Rick Friedman. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you're the first to hear new episodes. If you want to nominate someone for Climate Hero of the Week, send it to Rick at the link below. This has been a breath of fresh earth. Thanks for listening. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy and delicious breads, buns and tortillas? 
Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.